Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and my favorite kind of night is probably in the summer, right after dusk, or in dusk, when it's blue and you can hear the crickets. That's very nice. My name is Caitlin, and my favorite kind of night is the the kind with the silent K and armor, preferably at, at night. You know, like maybe (laughs) I'll stop now. (laughs) Very clever. (laughs) My favorite kind of night is probably a cold winter night, especially uh, I'm up here in Massachusetts and there's places where you can sit in the hot tub outside and these like wooden ones and the snow is coming down on you while you're warm. This is my favorite thing. I lived in Montana for many years and we would do that too. It starts snowing, you get in the hot tub, right? (laughs) Oh, that sounds like so much fun. I know we just came out of winter, but that sounds so nice that I think I would go back into winter for that. <laughs> it's, it's, it, don't go back. It's not, not worth it. <laughs> not that worth it. Don't do it to the rest of us, Aaliyah. <laughs> okay, fine, fine. Well, a big welcome to Holly Black, the number one New York Times bestselling author of over 30 fantasy novels for kids and teens, including The Folk of the Air, The Curse Workers, and The Book of Night. Debut adult novel. Yay. So exciting. Tell us about your book. So it is about Charlie Hall. She is a thief who has been stealing grimoires in which gloomists, who are magicians who control shadows, write down basically information about how magic works. And because it's a new thing, or at least it's it's a much expanded thing, there's not a lot of information about it. And so each of the gloomists prize what they have tightly. And that's where Charlie comes in. So she's been doing that for most of her life, and now she's trying to get out of that. It led her to a lot of bad things. She's trying to make a new life as a bartender. She's living with her sister, who is much too interested in Glomist magic and in waking her own shadow. And she's also living with her boyfriend, who is shadowless and possibly also soulless. And all that is going more or less well until her past comes back, and she becomes involved in some of her old scrapes and learns that she is not the only one with a history. I love how you just slipped that in there. It might be, might be soulless. Um, <laughs> yeah. As, as happens, you know. <laughs> I got to read an advanced review copy of this book, and it is super fun and dark and twisty and fabulous. And I have questions about the ending, but we're not going to talk <laughs> about that right now. <laughs> we're super excited to hear more about your writing process. I think Aaliyah and I are both fans. And mm-hmm. I just really want to ask lots of questions about your world building process and how you managed to cram so much world building and character building and all of that into your very short books, comparatively speaking to other other um, fantasy in the genre. So I'm that's my introduction that I just jumped all over Leah and gave instead no, of that was beautiful. You talk. Basically, we just want to talk about getting the most bang for your buck with word count. <laughs> so are you a planner? And if so, how does word count fit into your planning? So I am, I, I want to be a planner. I love note cards. I love art supplies. I love graph paper. And so nothing makes me happier than the idea that I could make a big plan and then I could follow the plan. But I, invariably, I make the plan and then I blow up the plan in the writing process. And I hate my writing process. I'm constantly struggling with it. I'm constantly um, angry about it. I come up with new ideas all the time for how I can fix it. But inevitably, what I do is I write a book and then I change 
almost everything about it. I I call myself an explosion writer, so it sounds, <laughs> sounds similar. That's very interesting to me. I always just thought you must be a planner because your books are so concise. That is awesome. Okay, I'm excited to find out more about this. Uh, it's because all my drafts are extremely skeletal. I just had a workshop and, you know, um, one of my friends was like, yes, well, the typical Holly Black book, it is very skeletal at this stage, but we know that you will build it out. <laughs> and I was like, this is what you said last time. Exactly. So specifically with world building, then, what tips would you give for writers who are looking to have lush worlds, but don't really know where to start? So I think part of the issue with world building is that books are essentially torture devices for the protagonist. They, if, if someone has a secret, right? If you're the protagonist's book, you have a secret. Your secret is coming out. If there's something afraid of, you're afraid of, you will be confronting it. If there is something that you hoped no one would ever discover, they're discovering it. And so in the same way, whatever kind of magic is in that book has to be at least partially about whatever thematic thing is going on with the protagonist. Book of Night is so much about shadow selves, about the parts of us we don't want to acknowledge, our shame, our fear, our desire. And so that's literalized in this idea that when your shadow is woken, you can feed it that part, those parts of yourself if you want. It's easier if you do it that way, but it comes with consequences because as you shove all of those parts of yourself into this thing, it becomes more sentient. And what have you made now? And that part of the world building connects with a lot of the things that are going on with Charlie, personally. And so I think in terms of world building, one of the things that you're doing is figuring out character stuff, then figuring out world stuff, then figuring out character stuff, then figuring out world stuff, and kind of going back between those things. You know, and then, you know, obviously, when you build a world, you have to figure out how to make it more real, how to think, well, what would people really do with this power? How would it really work? But I think that the difficulty of world building is that it has to be it has to be thematic and it also has to be story generative. It has to be the kinds of magic systems and world building that creates more story. You know, I came up with many, many ideas of how shadows could work in this world, and some of them were really cool, but not story generative. So I had to put them aside and find something that was. And I think there's there's some danger, right, in the idea that we're going to make a big binder and it's going to have our whole world in it and it's all going to make sense and it's all going to be perfect. But it might not be perfect for the character you want to write. I love that. Uh, I think story generative isn't a term we've thrown around before, but that that's so true. I know personally, I fall in love with these ideas I have at first. And I think there's a lot of value in understanding that you can have a, a first love idea and that doesn't have to be a core of the book and it doesn't even have to stay in the book. It can be an evolving project. So do you, when you're coming up with your ideas, it sounds like you are somebody who outlines and then you deviate from your outline a lot based on just whatever inspires you as you write, which is awesome. So when you come up with those ideas, how do you decide which ones are story generative? I think um, when you start thinking about the magic in the real world, that's when you find out if it's story generative. Because either you can think of a million different ways that people are going to use this magic that are interesting and that feel connected to how people actually are and feel connected to the kinds of crimes and misdemeanors that people actually commit, or you don't. You think, oh, it, it works in the world the way I imagined it working when I first came up with it, and it, it goes nowhere. Mm. Mm. So it's kind of all about impact. We talk a lot about how if you have an idea, then ask, 
what does that do to the economy? And if the economy is this way, what does that do to society structure? So in that sense, off the top of my head example, you come up with the magic system where the magic system is a special kind of shoelace that never comes untied. Mm-hmm. That's cool, but it doesn't really impact most people probably most of the time. Unless, you know, your character has a phobia of untied shoes, then maybe you could take something. But in most cases, that's well, probably a dead end. There's a lot of things, though, that if it can tie shoes, what else can it tie? Oh. Right? Like, I feel like there is actually so the idea of knotting is a really like the idea of knotting something so tight that it cannot come undone is a really interesting one. And I think there are ways you could make that extremely story generative. Okay. I feel like this is going to get dark really fast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Like all of Holly Black's books. (laughs) It's on brand. (laughs) A lot of your books, I reread The Cruel Prince and then then read Book of Night in order to prepare to talk to you about these. But I feel like both of them have lots of moving parts. Um, And that's something that automatically ups word count if you have like side quests and plots that are you know, you have to have enough room to fit them all into your book. So how do you go about keeping all of those so streamlined? So it's funny that you should ask it that way, because really the question for me is, how did I get it so big? (laughs) (laughs) For me, cutting is not really an issue. I love to cut, but I am, I'm constantly just expanding and fleshing things out and, you know, adding more complications and more turns and more twists. That's, that's how I write, is I take sort of this fairly simple thing and I expand it and complicate it and add side quests to it. It would be my dream to have this giant thing that I could cut down. That would be amazing. But I, that is not my process at all. So tell us what your, um, your initial draft looks like then. You mentioned that it's skeletal. So like what kinds of things go into a first draft for you? So one thing that I've been starting to do is I've been trying to fast draft through the last couple of drafts that I've done with some success, my urge is always to just rewrite something until it's right and then go on. And I did that in um, a lot of my early books and it was, it took so long. And then when I made big changes, it was a problem because obviously I, you know, would have be undoing this like baroque work that I had carefully arranged. And so my idea now is that I'm going to write really quickly and make all of my mistakes up front. And since I'm going to do pretty much eviscerate this thing anyway, I should just go ahead and make it bad. But I still feel like I need to have like the beginning be right. You know, I rewrite that first chapter because for me, it's like when you're getting a haircut and someone pulls that first, you know, bit of hair and cuts the rest of your hair to it, it better be right. Mm. You know, or everything's yeah. going to go sideways. So I need that beginning to be right. And then I attempt to extrapolate from there. Wow. That's so different from anything I've ever heard. That's <laughs> It's terrible. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I think I'm the reverse. I go back and rewrite the first chapter last to fit the story as it turned out. But that's really cool. I like the hair analogy of using it to cut the rest of the story out. So we just recently talked to Victoria Schwab, and she talks about how she picks and chooses what scenes go at the beginning. So how do you get that beginning right? Normally, I feel as though of what it's part of what I come to with the story is this idea of both the texture, kind of, like how it feels and what's going on with the character. But I will say that in Book of Night, that wasn't true. I started that, I wrote so many first chapters before I knew what I was doing. I started on a retreat and my friend 
uh, the Raider Kelly link was there and each night I would give her a chapter and she would be like, okay, I guess probably every morning I gave her a chapter and she was like, okay, this is a, this is a chapter. This seems good. And then I would delete it basically and rewrite it. And by rewrite it, I mean, I would change who the protagonist was. I would change the magic system. I would change everything that was happening. I had an idea of a little bit of how the magic worked and I had an idea of what was going on with Vince and that was it. And until I figured out it wasn't his book, it was Charlie's book, and learned about her, I could not go forward. So you established who the main character, like, that's really interesting. How did you choose that it was going to, it was going to be her story and not Vince's story? Well, one of the things that I was interested in, in terms of writing an adult book, was the way that characters are sort of stuck in place when you're older. There's a certain kind of stagnation, and a certain kind of stagnation that we embrace too, because chaos often is disruptive. Often it means a loss or a big gamble. And so I, that was something I was interested in going into it. But Vince is way too interested in stagnation. All he wants is for this book not to happen. And usually you can sort of tempt a character or you can pressure a character, but it was really, really hard to get him to do stuff. And when I realized no, this isn't his book, this isn't his story, even though he's got a story that's going on in the background of it that he's trying to get out of, it started to come together. That's really interesting. I like that distinction of of adult conflict being so different from YA conflict. And then also, I have a friend, Trisha Levenseller, who does a workshop where it helps people to figure out who the protagonist of the story is. And it sounds like you're right in there where you're like, is he the person who is moving this story forward? And the answer is no. (laughs) And they're probably not the protagonist. I probably have other questions for you, but I think we've got you only for a little bit longer. So maybe this will be a good time to transition to the second part of our podcast. So we're going to um, critique a chapter from one of you listeners. If you would like to read the text of the chapter as we critique it, it is on our website and it's in the podcast notes. This is a story about a little girl during um, World War II who is living with her grandfather in the countryside in England, I believe, um, in order to avoid the bombings in, in London. And she starts finding fingers made out of wood on the ground. What are some things that we like about this mission? I really liked the organic nature of the fingers. They're twiggy. They're weird. It's a weird kind of magic that I've never seen. And yet it feels really folkloric in a way that I like. I was very interested in figuring out more about what was happening. Character seems great. The situation is really interesting. It's an interesting space for magic. It's a liminal space, right? A liminal time in a character's life. I thought there was some really gorgeous language in this. Like, I liked the opening line, which is, I found the first finger in the middle of the snow-covered path. I mean, I immediately was so excited to read more about where the finger came from and what it was. And um, the introduction of her dog, which she never actually says that Tuppence is a dog until later, but we know just based on the way the language is used mm-hmm. that her dog is the one who's brave enough to go look at the finger first. And there's just some beautiful language throughout. I, I'll have my notes in the submission if you want to go through and see things that I tagged. But just really, really pretty. There is some really beautiful language, especially later on. There's some really, like, stuff about magic and the feeling of magic, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a line about thunder sounding like stomping feet. And, oh, there's some good ones. If we are ready to move on to things that might need a second look. I think probably the biggest thing is that the progression of information is somewhat anticlimactic. We're introduced to a finger... And then we're told, oh, it's not a finger, it's cut, it's a stick. And that doesn't actually need, the, 
we are disappointed, but we don't need to be. It's just a progression of information thing. If we find a stick and then we realize it's a finger, that's exciting. But finding a finger and realizing it's a stick is not exciting. <laughs> that's true. Even though it turns out to be a magical finger, it's not quite magical here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably, especially in the first page, the the biggest note. I love it if the character's name was introduced sooner. We find that it's Alana, but we find it out on the third page. And I would really like to be more present in her body. I don't have a sense of what she's wearing. I don't have a sense of if she's cold. I don't really have a sense of physicality at all. And then probably the two things that are most common, but also need some addressing is what does she want and what are the stakes? And they're, they're those questions that are so frustrating. And I ask, I mean, it, I ask myself this all the time. This is something I think everybody often needs to do in a second run through is to figure out, okay, yes, what does this character want? And like, what do they want personally and immediately? And then, you know, yeah, what is the external pressure? Because especially when you're looking at something like where we have a war, you know, you might think, oh, she wants the war to be over, right? And the stakes are, you know, they could get hurt, they could get killed. But we need the personal stakes. Like, what is she actually worried about? And what what is the kind of thing that she wants that she can actually like act upon? Yeah, I think that I was in that same space as I was reading. There are so many beautiful descriptions of like her relationship with her Mm -hmm. family. She has this box with like things from her family members. You can feel her missing them. There's some really interesting like she obviously is traumatized by what she's seen. But I I had that note, too, as I was reading, as I wasn't really sure who she was. I knew so much about the people around her, but I wasn't really sure what she was doing or how she felt about being out with her grandfather, who is a little bit confused and maybe doesn't know who she is. She does feel a little bit passive Mm -hmm. because we don't really know what she's going to be doing. She's not the person who's moving the story forward right now. She's just kind of finding things. I think that if she had a little bit more fear about what was going on it would really help us i think that we experience emotion as the character experiences emotion and then i think the other thing is you told me that it was during world war ii but the text did not i have no idea like i could i could put together some of what you're saying but i don't think a kid could yeah i actually wanted to ask you about that um because you've written quite a few middle grade books. How did you feel about this as a, as a middle grade voice and middle grade world? I think that it's it seems middle grade, but I think in, I think grounding it more in kid emotions would be really helpful. Like if a kid finds a finger, you're going to freak out. And that's fun. We want mm-hmm. to be in, in, that, in that experience, right? We want to be in the experience of being nervous and being worried about whether or not our grandfather who is the only adult who is there to take care of us is a good caretaker, whether we're going to have to take care of him, like all of that stuff and that worry and that emotionality, I think is what connects us to the character at any age, but in particular for middle grade readers. I really like what you just said about worrying about whether or not the grandfather can take care of her because I was worried about that, but I didn't feel like she Mm -hmm. was necessarily worried about that. And yeah, like that internal, like I want it to be coming from, from the book and not from me. I think one of the things that I see people struggle with with middle grade is that we want to make it okay for kids. And I think sometimes as writers, we want to make it okay for those kids. And that is the thing that we cannot do. We must identify with them and not, you know, and not with the the urge to protect them. 
And so I think that letting them be scared and letting them make mistakes. And, you know, I I always point people to The Goonies, which is the oldest movie now. But those kids get in a lot of trouble and they go off and they do stuff and the stakes are really high. It's true. And it's filmed in one of the most beautiful places ever. I love the Oregon coast. So everybody, that's your homework. Go watch Goonies. We're probably out of time here. Thank you so much to this writer for submitting your work. And thank you so much, Holly, for coming on our show. It was my pleasure. There's nothing I like better than to read somebody else's submission and talk about it. So I was so excited that I got to do this. Hey. We like doing it, too. Um, we have special editions of Book of Night on sale in our store with pretty stenciled edges. Be sure to check them out. Have you seen them yet, Holly? So pretty. So pretty. Oh, so Just a heads up, we are going to be taking a break on the special editions over the summer, but we do have some really cool ones lined up for this coming fall. Um, So stay tuned both to our newsletter and on social media for opportunities to get your work critiqued. If you like the show, please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you've got a second, be sure to write us reviews and share with your friends. It really helps us. So we will see you next time.